Hello and welcome to the JCBC Podcast. My name is Sean, and I'm so grateful that you found our podcast. Listen, the JCBC Podcast is a collection of several sermons that have been preached over the years at Johns Creek Baptist Church. I pray that as you find these sermons and you listen to them, they would meet you where you are in your journey. And I trust that God will do something in these words to lift up your head, if only for a little while. So go ahead and subscribe to us and follow along. The grace and the peace of our Lord uh, be with all of us gathered here in worship, whether you are here in the sanctuary or in our family life center, or you're part of our extended family watching online from somewhere. I welcome you into this time of study, and I invite you to turn with me to 1 Corinthians 13. And as you find your way in your own Bibles to 1 Corinthians 13, you know, it's Father's Day, and so I had thought about, what if I start the sermon with a bunch of dad jokes? Yeah, yeah. Decided not to do that. You're welcome. Because you, know, you know what happens when I tell dad jokes. He laughs. It's about what I expected to get from you people. <laughs> All right. I'm turning to more holy and sacred things. See, because it's funny on two levels, see? Because there's dad and there's dad. Okay, so 1 Corinthians chapter 13, and we hear these words. If I speak in the tongues of mortals and of angels, but do not have love, I am a noisy gong or a clanging cymbal. If I have prophetic powers and understand all the mysteries and, and all knowledge and I have all faith so as to remove mountains but do not have love, I am nothing. If I give away all my possessions and, and I, I'm handed over, I hand my body over that I may boast but do not have love, I gain nothing. See, love is patient. Love is kind. Love is not envious or boastful or arrogant or rude. It does not insist on its own way. It is not irritable or resentful. It does not rejoice in wrongdoing, but it rejoices in the truth. It bears all things believes all things, hopes all things, endures all things. Love never fails. Yeah, This is the reading of the sacred word. It is reliable and it can be trusted. Will you pray with me now as we seek the Lord's presence to guide our minds and our hearts? Come, Holy Spirit, our hearts inspire and fill us with your holy fire. For if you are with us, then nothing else matters. But if you are not with us, then nothing else matters. We pray in the name of our Lord Jesus Christ. Amen. Now, the scripture verse or passage that I read just a moment ago may be one of the most 
popular scripture verses in all the Bible. I mean, you don't even have to to be a religious person to know or have heard this passage. It ranks up there with like the 23rd Psalm or John 3.16 at sporting events. You know, you don't even have to be super religious to have heard this. All you have to do is go to one or two weddings, <laughs> right? Because it's, it's inspirational, it's comforting, it's, it's got sentimentality just dripping from its pages. Love is all of these things. And when you gather around at a wedding and you lift up this text, these are the hopes that we have for the two who are saying yes to one another. But I I suggest to you today, my sisters and brothers, if you and I really knew what Paul was up to in chapter 13 of 1 Corinthians, you'd realize we would all realize that He wasn't trying to inspire them. He wasn't trying to encourage them or give them sentimental words that they could embroider on a pillow and put on the couch. He was actually trying to provoke them, to rebuke them, to convict them for what they had allowed love to become right in front of their own eyes. See, Paul has been up to this thing in 1 Corinthians this whole time. Paul understands that the Corinthian church is this church embedded in the culture of Corinth, but has been there long enough to allow the, the standards, the, the ethics, the, the, the kind of definitions of life to seep into the bloodstream of the church itself. And in so doing, the people who were followers of Jesus had begun to blur their own identity of who they are meant to be in this world. And Paul keeps on holding up this cross and says that the cross of Christ is the emblem by which we all take shape. It's the the symbol for which we all are to remember the crucified Lord who died for all of our sins. And yet, not simply that we might have some ticket into heaven, but rather that we may have a way of life to live right now before that happens. The way I've been saying it throughout the series is More than just an assurance of eternal life after death, the cross of Jesus is a clarion call to a way of life before death. Now, he knows that in Corinth, Corinth was a highly competitive, almost cutthroat society where you competed with your neighbor. You contended and climbed. You, You attempted to climb to the ladder of success that would get you higher than your neighbor so that you may boast Public boasting in the streets of Corinth was was out of hand. It was all about me and mine. It was all about my ego. Look what I have accomplished. And the people in Corinth, the church of Corinth, had begun to behave the same way. Not just with what they were able to do in their human lives, but they began to behave the same way in the way that God had had gifted them. See, we, we know last week we talked a little bit about this. Watch me awkwardly as I take a sip of water. Mm. We know last week, as we discussed, everyone who is a follower of Jesus is given what the text calls a manifestation of the Spirit. In other words, an expression of God's presence in the world. And waking up to what that is, to what that gift is, or that ability, or that passion is, is part of the spiritual journey. You and I are called to discover and wake up to that thing that God has put in us because of Christ. But in Corinth, while they knew everyone was gifted, everyone had a gift of the Spirit of some sort, just like you do if you're in Christ, 
While they knew that, they began to rank in order of their perceived importance the gifts that seemed to be more impressive, more spectacular. So they put gifts of of speaking and knowledge and prophecy at the very top, and at the very bottom they ranked those who had gifts of compassion, generosity, um, servanthood. And yet last week as we talked in chapter 12, Paul is saying, look, you're thinking about it wrong. The, the church of Christ is like this body, and the body has different members, and the different members have different functions, but they are all equally important. There is no stacking of perceived uh, importance or value in the eyes of God. And so chapter 13, Paul keeps up with that theme, and what he's doing here is he's drilling down even deeper on just a few of those gifts that some of the Corinthians thought were so spectacular, so wonderful, everybody should aspire to have these gifts. And Paul drills down on them and says to them, look, okay, yeah, you may have the gift of speaking in the tongues of mortals and angels. You may be able to speak in such a way that inspires multitudes of people. And when you speak, they leave the place saying that was a golden-tongued orator. And they leave inspired. And yet, Paul says, if what you do with the spoken word is not motivated and fueled by love, then what are you doing? In fact, what you're doing is simply making noise in the ears of God. And, and, and if, if your gift is not the spoken word, but maybe the gift of prophecy, the gift of knowledge, the gift of being able to understand and unravel the mysteries of the universe, maybe you know something about the expanding universe, or you can speak eloquently or wax eloquently on the, the details of subatomic particles that make up all the atoms that hold our bodies together. Maybe you know these things, but if you do what you do and know what you know without having been motivated by love, then you know nothing and you are nothing. You may have faith, another spiritual gift, and maybe your faith gives you the capacity to say to this mountain, get up and move into the heart of the sea. Maybe you can wave your hand and bring healing to people. Maybe there's a gift in you that actually brings medical, physical healing to people in what you do. But if what you do is absent or void of love, then what you do is nothing. For in Paul, Paul is saying there is a way to so demonstrate what you have the capacity to do, but if it's void of love, well, it's, it's meaningless. He uses an interesting uh, image, to be honest. Uh, before we get there, he's working off of what Jesus had taught. Jesus said, look, somebody said, what's the greatest commandment? He said, love. Isn't there more to it than that, Jesus? No, that's it, Love. No, 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 we know love, Jesus, but come on. What's the greatest thing? I mean, of all the things that are most important, what is it? Love. Love the Lord your God with everything in you, all your heart, soul, mind, body, strength. Love your neighbor as yourself. Love. To love. <laughs> On the night that he was betrayed, he was with his closest friends and followers, those who knew him best and loved him most, and he said to them, a new commandment I give to you. He didn't say, a new suggestion I leave with you, a new recommendation I give to you, a new tip for better living that I want to give to you. No. A new commandment I give to you. Love one another. 
As I have loved you, so you must love one another. By this, by nothing else, nothing else, by the way, by this, they will know that you are my disciples if you have love for one another. It's amazing how you and I complicate the simple, how we pollute what is clean. It is a clean command. There is one thing the Lord requires of you, to love. In fact, he uses an interesting image at the beginning of the text that I read a moment ago. He said, look, if you have the ability to speak and impress and do things that are on a platform and people look at it and say, oh, that was so good, and yet you don't have love, what you sound like is a, a noisy gong or a clanging cymbal. And I love that image. You know why? Wait for it. My predecessor and hero, Bill Self, used to say, I'm water-powered. <laughs> so, a few years ago, I'm in the Family Life Center, and I'm issuing a benediction to uh, those of our church family worshiping in the Family Life Center. And when I do that, like you know, and here as well, what I like to do is I ask musicians to join me in a partnership of giving a benediction where, where there's some music that helps lift my words and together there's this beautiful cacophony or symphony of, of blessing as we, we leave you out or lead you out. And I was saying some very important things that day. It was really, really special words. And I was saying things like, you know, don't forget when you leave this place, you're called to live like you actually believe the things we've affirmed in this place. But you're not by yourself. You go with Christ. And I'm talking Christ before you, behind you, beside you, above and below. And I'm speaking these words. And, and the musicians are playing. But in the Family Life Center, they have in-ear monitors. These are monitors on the stage here. We can hear ourselves. They have in-ear monitors, which means the musicians hear all the music being played. So the guitarist can hear the bass player. And the bass player can hear the keyboardist. And the keyboardist can hear the drummer. The drummer can hear all the musicians. And we're, we're in there listening. And, and yet the problem is I'm speaking these words, and they're playing. And it's beautiful. I think the reason I don't know is because the switch wasn't flipped. It was not playing in the house. No one in the room could hear it except the musicians. And what was being played in their ear was beautiful. And, and the drummer could hear all of it, which is why he thought it would be a good idea to begin crashing the cymbals. Yeah, and he's crashing the cymbals. I'm like, and the Lord go before. And then, you know, there's, there's cymbals and, and nobody hears and nobody understands what's going on. I'm like, what is happening behind me? I have no idea. But they were hearing it. It made sense to them. But to all of us in the room, we're like, what is happening here? I look down in the front row and the youth are kind of laughing a little bit like, what is up with this? And, and yet I think about that moment when I think about what Paul's trying to communicate here, because if you have a gift, you can, you can rise to the highest expression of that gift you have. And yet if you don't express that gift that God has given you through the motivation of love, it's as if you are doing your gift, you are doing the talking, you are serving and whatever your giftedness is, but all it is is loud crashing cymbals. That's what it sounds like, clutter, noise. Because in Paul's estimation, love is the supreme measure of the cruciform way. Love is the supreme measure of the cruciform way. You know, cruciform meaning cross-shaped. The only way to understand the cross is through love. Yeah. Which raises a question about how we measure 
success in all the things that we do. I mean, how do you measure success? I mean, I'm talking about in every realm of what you think is important in your life, how do you measure success? Because it's different from, from experience to experience. If you run a business, if you have a vocation in which you, you run this business, one of the measures of success is you've got to have a better bottom line this year than you had last year or you're in trouble. You've got to, to gain another client base. You've got to flip another property. You have to expand to another branch. You have to do the things that keep you moving forward or else you're moving back. And I get it. Those are measures of success and they matter. But until we realize that what we do as a vocation is not simply a means to survival, but rather a platform in which God has a venue to, to move God's love to us and through us to those we serve, then we don't see our vocation in the way that God wants us to see it. It's not a job for you. It's a calling. I'm talking about no matter what you do for a living, your calling is to do what you do and do it well. When? Do it as as powerfully and successfully as you can achieve what you can but understand that the fuel in the tank for the christian is to understand what i do and where i do it is not simply a means of survival it is a venue for god's love to move through me all the way to those i serve what is the measure of success for you i mean how do you measure success in your family relationships parenthood what's father's day how about how do you measure being a good parent? Is it, well, my kids don't get in trouble. They've never been suspended. They didn't get a detention. They made good grades. They got into the great school that I wanted to go to. I got them in. And, 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 and so now they're in the right sorority, the right fraternity. And now they married the right person. Shoo! All right? Or the question is, will they know how to love? Will they have seen in your home how to love those who are not only easy to love, those who are hard to love? Is love the primary motivator of what it means to raise your children? What if you, what if you play sports? If you are an athlete, on the court, on the field, if you're a performer, on the stage, what is the end game and how do you measure success? Well, one of the end games is win. I mean, that's the point, right? That's the point of healthy competition. You want to crush the component, the, the opponent, right? So go and win. But until you recognize that you have brothers or sisters on your team who are watching you perform and you have a venue now, to be excellent in what you're attempting to do, but at the same time be motivated by a hidden motivation that cruciform love may flow through you to those who you are working and serving and playing alongside until you see that love is the supreme measure of the cruciform way, then we don't see clearly. How about church? How do we measure success in church? I mean, for years, you know how we have measured it, right? Simple. Butts in seats and dollars in plates. How's the offering? Because the offering allows us to do some things like build buildings. Well, how many are coming? Because attendance kind of drives your idea of success because the more people you have, presumably, then apparently you're doing some good work there. 
And those, like the other examples, are measures of success. But long before the pandemic, for a decade we've been talking about the church needs in this post-Christian, post-religious, post-confessional, post-denominational, post-everything world, the church needs new measures of success to meet a world that is radically different than the success-driven world that we once served. And, and one of those is, well, what about the measure of engagement, the measure of true presence, the measure of showing up with your full self? And Paul would say, what about the measure of love? Will your church be known for love? When people think of Johns Creek Baptist Church, will they think, oh, that's the church where, yeah, a big steeple, right, across from the hospital, and they did it blue during COVID, yeah. Or will they say, oh, Johns Creek Baptist, yeah, 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 that's where we go there once a year uh, for the big Christmas thing that we do. There's big music, and it's great, and the family goes to eat Chinese afterwards. It's great, awesome. Will they think, about our incredible education system here, our Sunday school program? Will they think about the excellence in music that we have? Will they think about, oh gosh, how much this church gives away in missions every year and our partnerships that we have both locally, globally, and, and everything in between? Will they think about that? Because all those are good measurements for how we're doing, but it's not the dominant measurement. The dominant measurement is, will they know that right here is where we know how to love? Where I brought my daughter after the divorce, and she thought she was completely alone, and she was sulking, and she was sullen, she was withdrawing, but I brought her to your Sunday school, and a Sunday school teacher saw her and heard her and paid attention to her, and she has learned that at this place she is loved, and now she is growing up in a repaired life, learning how to love those whose lives are in disrepair. That's what it means to be a church that knows how to love. Is this gonna be the place where I found a home here when I couldn't find a home anywhere else? Because maybe, maybe the way I see scripture and the way I see God is not really welcome in every other place. And, and yet here you gave some space for us to work out our salvation in fear and trembling patiently with one another because that's where I was loved and that's where I learned how to love. Because any of us... Oh, we can climb the ladders of success in any of these categories. Work, home, parenthood, marriage, church. But it's like the old saying, you can climb the ladder of success and make it all the way to the top and realize that your ladder has been leaning against the wrong wall the whole time. The wall is love. And if we climb to any level of success or achievement, we must be driven by the one motivator that put Christ on the cross for your sins and mine, and that is love. If anyone is in Christ, the one measure of success that you should align your life to is nothing less than, nothing more than, and nothing other than cross-shaped love. But to talk about cross-shaped love requires another sip of water. Cross-shaped love is a different kind of love. Cruciform love is not the love that you and I see defined everywhere we look in our culture, neither in America nor in Corinth. The love that we define in this country as love is, is too sentimental. It's, it's too self-focused. 
It's all about how I feel about the thing I'm supposed to love. How do I feel about her? How do I feel about him? How do I feel about this church or this organization? How do I feel? And we think that love is driven by our feelings. Sometimes when I do premarital counseling, I've told some of you this, I'll sit with a couple and, and we'll have this conversation and one of the first things I ask them is, so I want to know why you want to get married. Because you know you don't have to, right? Oh, yeah, yeah, we know. So tell me, why do you want to get married? Now, many times they have an amazing answer. It blows my hair back, and I'm like, oh, let's do this. We're ready. Other times I'll hear things like, well, they'll kind of look at each other, you know. They kind of just kind of grimace. And he's kind of, well, he just makes me feel so happy. He just, oh. No, you make me feel happy. No, you do. You know, and I just love. He loves me, and he makes me so funny. He's just so funny. I just it makes me so happy because I laugh when I'm around her. No, you make me laugh. No, you make me laugh. Aww. And I, and so on the on the outside, here's what I'm doing. I'm going. Hmm. Oh. Oh. Hmm. Hmm. On the inside, in my head. I am literally getting up from my seat, walking over and smacking both of them across the face. I'm like, get a hold of yourself, all right? You are about to go into the fire. Gird up your loins, put on your armor. This is not easy work. It is the greatest journey you could possibly fathom making, but it is not easy. And it's not about your feelings. Now, my wife, Laura, and I, we have a great marriage. In fact, I would say that's the best thing that we have going is our marriage. And it's, it's the truth, however, that great marriages are not found. They're made through years of learning how to die to your own ego for the sake of someone else. For years, learning to strip away my pride, my ego, my desires, my will, because it's not just me anymore. And the same thing can be said about a church. We sometimes come with great feelings, or as, as Gary Chapman calls them, tingles in the beginning. Oh, it's just all so perfect. But in time, you realize, as we are human beings prone to sin and selfishness, in time, you have to learn the hard work of stripping off the ego in order to love the one who is beneath it all. Sometimes with marriage preparation, I'll use a passage of Scripture that really technically is not a marriage passage. Paul is writing to the book to the church at Philippi, and in Philippians chapter 2, he's dealing with conflict in the church and how they need to get over themselves and reduce themselves and humble themselves. But I use it as a marriage passage encouragement because these words could not be improved upon listen to these words do nothing from selfish ambition or conceit but in humility regard others as better than yourselves let each of you look not to your own interests but to the interests of others let the same mind be in you that was in Christ Jesus who although he was in the form of God did not regard equality with God as something to be exploited but he emptied himself and what we need to recapture in this pursuit of divine cruciform love is that love is about not what you receive but what you empty out 
Cruciform means cross-shaped. The cross is a love that doesn't absorb anything but pours it all out. Jesus even said, there is no better kind of love. He said, no one has greater love than this, than to lay down one's life for one's friends. And sometimes at a marriage ceremony, I will pray over the couple saying, we pray that in your life together, you will learn the liberating joy of laying down your life for one another every day of your life. But that's a decision that has to be made every single day. Not just in marriages, but in friendships, in churches. When you get up to go to work on a Monday morning, is learning to lay down your life for the sake of something bigger that's going on both in you and through you. Yeah. So Paul is suggesting that there are 16 characteristics here of love. Every one of these 16 characteristics all sound great, all look great when they're embroidered on a pillow on your couch. Love is patient and love is kind. But the truth is, every one of the 16 characteristics that we read a moment ago requires something first to die. That's kind of how resurrection works, you know. If something is to rise up, something first must die. So he says here in verse 4, love is patient. Well, sure it is. Sure love is patient. But it's not patient overnight. You don't wake up patient. You know how you, you love with a patient love? By dying to your desire to have what you want anytime you want it the way you want it. And this ain't Burger King. It's not your way right away. This kind of love requires a crucifixion of my desire to have everything I want. And when that dies, the thing that rises in its place is patience. He says, you know, it's, it's, it, love is kind. But nobody wakes up just kind. Some people, even in Christ, don't wake up kind. It takes a coffee or two, right? But you don't just wake up kind. You love with a love that is kind only after having died to a desire to lord over people, to be in control, to have everyone do your, your bidding. But when you crucify, you die to that desire to have your way and to be in charge or to be in control, what rises in its place is a kindness. Because now you see others as not simply your pawns, beloved, but beloved sisters and brothers made in the image of God. It's not only patient and kind, but it's, oh, it's not envious. <laughs> not envious. You know how you have a love that's not envious? You don't just wake up and say, I think today I'm going to try really hard to not be envious. No. You have to crucify it. Because once you die to the desire to have what everybody else around you has, here's what happens. You begin to realize, if I crucify my desire to have what everybody else has, then suddenly, or over time, I begin to realize what I have and who I have and where I am is all a gift of grace. And now suddenly, I'm more content with my little life and being content with the life that God gave me means I don't have to envy your life. Now I can love you with a love that is patient, kind, and not envious. And we won't go through all of them, but this is the same principle. If you don't want to love with a love that's arrogant, boastful, or rude, well, it means a crucifixion of the ego. I wish maybe this week you would take this passage and ask yourself as you study these 16 characteristics, what is it in me? that must die in order for each of these to emerge as authentic, cruciform love in my life. 
Because overarching all of it, the, the, the umbrella on this rainy day that covers this entire passage is, wait for it, we must die to the same thing. We must all die to a bad definition of love. We must die to a bad definition of love. Where love is defined as what I get and how it makes me feel and rather come alive to another. Now in 2016, 2016, the New York Times put out an article that was the most read article of 2016. Uh, it was by a man named Alain, uh, Alain, uh, Labouton, Alain, Labouton, Alain Labouton, if, uh, a French uh, philosopher and writer. And he, he wrote this article called, Why You Will Marry the Wrong Person. It was the most read article in 2016. Now keep in mind, a couple other things happened in 2016, right? I mean, I know we didn't get a lot of coverage, but there was a presidential election in 2016, and I know the media didn't really cover it much, so it might have happened without us knowing it. But in a year like that, the most read article was about why you will marry the wrong person. And he goes on to describe some of the things we're talking about here, about how we are crippling ourselves in this country by a bad definition of love. For as long as we continue to define love as what we get and how we feel, the more we cripple ourselves because sooner or later those feelings subside. He says, there's this myth out there that, oh, there's the perfect person. And, and if I could just find her or find him, that one person can meet all of my needs and satisfy all my human desires and emotions and, and, and longings. And here's what happens. Occasionally we'll find somebody that kind of looks like that. And we get what Gary Smalley calls the tingles. We get all tingly when we're with them. And it's great. I mean, Laura still walks in the room. I get tingles all the time. Sometimes I barely can breathe when that woman walks in the room. And yet, it's not every day. Because in time, he points out something that you and I know to be true in the faith. In time, we become selfish. In time, we become self-focused. And, and, and for a number of a hundred reasons, those tingles go away. Now, this is not, not uh, Labaton talking. This is Sean talking. In time, sin creeps in. Selfishness creeps in. And eventually, you begin to say, well, why, isn't, why do I not feel the way I used to feel with him or with her? Because I, we, it used to be so much fun. It used to, used to make me laugh so much. Oh, it makes me so happy. Why do I not feel that way anymore? And then we assume because we have a bad definition of love, it must be over. I mean, I fell in love, I must fall out of love, which are just terrible phrases, ridiculous. You don't fall into it like you tripped, right? Love doesn't happen to you, you happen to it. So he, he goes on to say what we need to swap is not our, our spouse or our partner or our church or, our, or whatever it is we're wanting to swap. This is what he says. Instead, we need to swap the romantic view of love for an awareness that every human will frustrate, anger, annoy, madden, and disappoint us. And we will do the same to them. There can be no end to our sense of emptiness and incompleteness. But none of this is unusual or grounds for divorce. Choosing whom to commit ourselves to is merely a case... <laughs> of identifying which particular variety of suffering would we most like to sacrifice ourselves for. Now put that on a pillow, right? right? Put that on a Hallmark card. Oh, or better yet, put that on the invitation for your daughter's wedding. 
You're like, hey, you know, Mr. and Mrs. Smith request the honor of your presence because their daughter has discovered what variety of suffering she would like to sacrifice herself to. Right? You see what I mean? I mean, it's ridiculous. It's rid- and yet, and he's writing from a non-Christian, non-believing uh, standpoint, yet he's, he's preaching Paul because that is cruciform love. It is a daily decision to crucify my will and my desires and my ego tendencies for the sake of something else. And it is a kind of suffering. But you and I know if we follow Christ that suffering that leads to a cross always leads to a resurrection. And in this passage, he keeps talking about love like it's a person. He's like, love is kind. Love is patient. Love it. Because love is a person. Love is a person. Karl Barth, the great Swiss theologian, said, if you really want to understand this passage we're reading, then you should take the name Jesus and substitute it for every time you read the word love. And we hear these words. Jesus is patient. Jesus is kind. Jesus is not envious or boastful or arrogant or rude. Jesus does not insist on his own way. Jesus is not irritable or resentful. He does not rejoice in wrongdoing, but rejoices in the truth. Jesus bears all things, believes all things, hopes all things, endures all things. Jesus never fails. Yeah. Yeah, go on. Yeah. It is absolutely true. That is worth an amen, worth an applause, because it is the truth that sets you free. And the trouble is, if you and I were to want to leave this text and say, you know what, Sean, you're right. I'm just going to try my hardest to be more patient. I'm going to really try this week to be more loving and, and, and less envious and more, more kind. I can promise you it will fail. I will promise you it will fail. Because these are not simply goals for us to attain, like, like improving your you know, foul shot you know, at the free throw line. These are fruits that grow out of what is on the inside. And if Jesus is love, the question is, are you crucified with him? Because only until you are crucified with Christ can you rise with him to new life. The question is, are you crucified with him? I mean, maybe you're hearing this today. And it sounds like a foreign language. Maybe you have never thought of the possibility that love is not so much about what you receive and how you feel, but maybe for the first time you're hearing, it's about what I relinquish. And maybe you've never heard that that's exactly what God did for you. He relinquished all of his rights and comforts and privileges of heaven to sacrifice for the sake of your wholeness and salvation. And maybe you're at a place where you want to experience that kind of cruciform love, the life that is really life, but you don't know how to say it. You don't know what step to take. Maybe you take this step. Right where you are, you pray these words. God, I am out. I am done. I I have tried and tried and tried and come to the very edge of my resources, I've come to the end of me. And I'm praying that the end of me is the beginning of you. I confess to you that I've tried to build empires of my own. I've tried to parent well, I've tried to be a good husband, a good wife, I've tried to to be a good neighbor, I've tried to do all these things, and yet I've gotten it wrong, and I confess to you that I've gotten it wrong because 
it didn't start with you. And it didn't start with your love transforming me. So I humble myself right now. And I ask that you would forgive me of my sins. And I pray that you would help me to find the wholeness that I hear so much about, but in the right place, in you. I will follow you now and forever. Amen. If you prayed that, it's important. Important to tell somebody about that. Because it's not just that you are praying this. You realize maybe you've been with Christ for a long time. And you've, you've been walking and serving Christ in the church for decades. And yet maybe you've lost your way a little bit. And maybe it, it's a prayer of yours as well to simply say, I recognize. I have blurred my identity as a follower of you. And I'm behaving more like the world around me than, than you. And I'm loving with a definition that the world around me has given me instead of your definition. But I submit that to you now, Lord. And I humble myself and ask your forgiveness. Beloved, when God hears a prayer that is sincere and from your heart, God receives it and has grace enough to lift you up and carry the day. I'm going to ask that if you prayed something like that or you are still praying something like that in your heart, today, then let somebody know that. And we want to make it easy for you. So in the sanctuary, in a moment after the benediction, one of our pastors, he's right now making his way to the front. David will be here to talk to you. In the Family Life Center, uh, there will be a pastor there waiting to your left, waiting to talk to you. And if you're online, we want you to email us at connect at jcbc.org. And the reason we do this is because we want to make sure you know we take this part of your journey incredibly seriously and we want to simply walk alongside you as you find this love that will not let you go until then now is the time for us to depart to depart empowered by that love would you stand to your feet with me here in the sanctuary and in the family life center for our final blessing and benediction because now is the time when we scatter we move into the world to live in such a way that it demonstrates we actually believe the things we've affirmed in this place. So wherever it is that you go from here, may Christ go before you to prepare your way. May Christ go behind you in the days that you fear and you feel like retreating to encourage you one step forward at a time. May Christ go to your right and Christ to your left, abiding closer than even a sister or a brother. May Christ go above you When the dark clouds roll in to remind you there is one above the clouds who at the end of the day has the final word. May Christ go beneath you, girding you with confidence and removing all forms of fear. But mostly, may Christ go in you, transforming you from the inside out until your hearts beat in rhythm with his. Go in the grace and peace of our Lord.